Welcome back to the Wide Angle Podcast with your host, Mark Steiner. Today, for the first time ever on the Wide Angle Podcast, we have two guests. I have my friend Bobber and Mike. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Uh, hey guys, uh, I'm Mike. I am a adventure and landscape photographer based in uh, California, uh, just north of San Francisco. Uh, I am 21 years old and currently a college student. Hey guys, I hope you all remember me and miss me. My name is Barber. I am a 21-year-old Canadian urban slash up-and-coming astrophotographer um, from Toronto, Canada. I also go to college, and I am really glad to be back on here. Nice to see you again, Mark. It's, well, nice to hear you. Um, it's I feel so old all of a sudden because I am a grand four and a half years older than both of you, and that makes me feel very ancient but it's okay oh, grandpa, grandpa mark <laughs> grandpa mark <laughs> call me senpai it's fine <laughs> um has, has oh a nice God. ring to it so right it does you know it, it brings in that anime flair and makes me feel a little bit more wise than i actually am so <laughs> Oh, God. What was I going to say? So today we're talking about a number of things, as we always do. But um, I want to start off with both of your styles and how, Bobber, when we last talked, you were just barely getting into Astro slash weren't uh, that much into it. But now you are. And Mike, been seeing your photos of San Francisco and how those have been popping off. So we'll we'll talk about each of those respectively. But Let's start with Bobber. How did you find yourself getting into Astro? So if I remember correctly, I, I think I was in the middle of my, my Star Trail series when we were recording the last podcast. Mm. And I think I remember mentioning that I had something super excited, super exciting in the works. Um, so mm-hmm. I when I moved over to Twitter last year, it has been almost a year now, so yay me. Um, I, I was... On Instagram, and I was 100% an urban photographer. Like everything I posted, everything I shot, uh, or even wanted to shoot was urban and city stuff. Um, and then when I made that switch over to Twitter, um, and then you know, two, three months later, when when COVID hit and we had our first lockdowns here, I was kind of in this weird thing where I didn't want to go back into the city because it was just going to be that same repetitive thing over and over and over again, um, and. I figured I may as well take advantage of like quietness and the first thing that kind of popped into my mind was like space and stars and that's quiet that's dark and since there'll be no one on the roads I could kind of go anywhere and be decently secluded um so then that birthed my uh my okay let's let's do some astro stuff um, my buddy Luke and Coots, which I'm sure both of you and Mark, you and Mike know about, are is a fantastic photographer. And a few, I think about it, a few years back, he he had a Star Trail photo on his Instagram, and I'd always wanted to shoot that. Um, and then I I thought about it. I'm like, yo, I want to shoot this. Uh, so I I have this app on my phone called PhotoPills, which kind of tells me if how the conditions are, and it was it was perfect. Um, I asked a buddy of mine about this location that he had, the abandoned house photo. So if you go on my Twitter, you guys can see that. So I saw that abandoned house and I'm like, I want to do star trails there. So I, I hit him up. I found the location of that. I'm like, and then I messaged Luke and I'm like, Hey, do you want to come do star trails with me? I've never done them. You can help me out. This should be fun. He's like, hell yeah. So like the next day I pick him up and we drive, I think about two and a half hours North uh, of Toronto 
and we go there and we we do our first star trails thing and at first my own my my plan was to just to do one photo upload it and go okay life is great but then like after that i'm like no i i i have to i have to do more so i settled on making it a four piece thing i did it took so many hours to do all of them and now i think the only thing i want to shoot for like at least the next while is star trails at different locations i'm currently looking into doing something really crazy in toronto with star trails um i don't know if it's if it's physically possible just yet but if it is it's gonna blow everyone's mind away so astro is the next thing and i'm trying to blend astro and urban as well somehow so for me do you think that this is only because of covid or do you think this is a natural evolution of photography for you because you were getting tired of one style and you needed something fresh and new to keep yourself entertained or is it a bit of both that and also i i've been fascinated by by space since i was a kid mm. like when i was a kid i wanted to be an astronomer not even an astronaut i wanted to study the space study space and stars for some weird reason i was a nerd like that um so i've always had that inner passion about it like Stephen Hawking is is my ultimate idol and hero in life, um, so you know my life has revolved around space and stars for a while. So it it was sort of like a no brainer that this is the best time to do it. You have everything you you need to shoot it. I, I had also just got a wide angle lens at that point, um, so I could actually just I could do it. I had a, I I was primarily shooting with just a fifty one eight, and I liked having that restriction but i couldn't do anything but urban with a 50 and portraits but i'm not a person photographer so when i got the 24 i was like okay i can do some wide angle stuff and i can do astro so i, I did my first milky way shots a few a few months before that in the summer and um then yeah the time came and i'm like shoot this should this is gonna be fun so then my next question for you is uh are you more of a star trek guy or a star wars guy star wars mm, good answer that's the right answer <laughs> <laughs> cheers to that yeah 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 so mike going to your photo stuff now your sets i've seen quite a few go viral and uh you want to talk about those yeah so i mean all three of the sets that i've had go viral have been the exact same format the location versus shot deal um, and I mean, I think the reason that they went viral is more so just for like the color pop. Um, I recently, I mean, I haven't been doing landscape for all that long. Um, I used to shoot portraits back pre COVID and I was super into and all that. And then I started interning with, um, with my boss and I learned, you know, he kind of taught me the way of, uh, landscapes and we can get into that, uh, later, but, um, the I just kind of wanted to show like the like the behind the scenes and kind of like the look of what goes into the pictures that I take, um, especially like with the landscapes and like, you know, I, I try to make them look as natural as possible with while still having like that bright colors. And so um, trying to showing like in that background the bright colors how they're still there and all that and i think that's what kind of goes into why those those pictures grew so popular is because like the before picture is just as like looks amazing as well even if it's just it's just an iphone shot real quick and it kind of shows like this amazing landscape but here's my take on it you know and i think that kind of 
like that whole location, especially with the the most recent one, the one I think it peaked at 518,000. That was kind of like a, it was a cool kind of thing to see where all of a sudden that one blew up and then a bunch of people also started doing it and it was, you were able to kind of see like the location and then everyone's styles and takes on it. I think that was really cool. So this is something Bob and I have talked about before. Did you notice with those sets going viral, like a massive increase in your follower growth or not um i did yeah i mean the I, I get the first two the first one got like 14k the second one got like 38k um and that one gave me like a eight one the first one gave me like a 400 follower jump second one was like an 800 follower jump and then the 518,000 gave me like a 5,000 follower jump so what were you at before any of these sets around ballpark the first one that went viral was in august and that was my mount tamalpais fog shot and that one i think at the time of posting i was at around 600 followers and by the next day, I hit 1K. Okay. So this really yeah. jump-started. Yeah. Okay. So you were very new to Twitter when these sets started going off. I, well, kind of. I mean, I had, I I joined my first group chat back in December of 2019. Okay. And it was a very slow growth for a long time. And then it just kind of like a, it was a, kind of like that kickstart snowball that effect I yeah totally yeah, that's how it goes <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um but i mean yeah i mean the thing is now is like my follower growth when i do post i've been kind of um taking a break for the past like month or so and we can talk about that later as well um but whenever i do post i mean there's definitely i get a big follower jump so it's like when i get around to posting consistently which hopefully will start very soon again um, I think that follower growth is going to be really like exponential at that point. I'm kind of, kind of excited, curious and excited to see where that goes. Um, because when you with like, with that, like viral kind of a post, it kind of branches you outside of the photo community. And so you, it's a whole new audience for those retweets that you get, which is kind of interesting. No, for sure. And that it's, it's that branching outside of the photo community that really helps, you know, like, um, I think my most, viewed set i want to say it's like around six thousand likes which for me was like mind-blowing um but i think what really got it above like that 1k barrier was that someone outside of the photo community or someone in the photo community but wasn't like retweeted it and most of their following was in paris france actually and they weren't in the photo community. And then it just like kind of took off there because they just kept retweeting it amongst themselves in a totally different community. And I was like, oh, that's interesting seeing that it's not actually the photo community that's that's making this pop off. It's branch it's it's breaking through that wall, that barrier of just staying within the same niche. And I think that's definitely how you grow a following and i've been talking about this with youtube as well as like you can't force yourself into one niche because if you do you're not going to find people outside that niche ever following you because they're not interested in that kind of thing so it's it's branching out to that wider audience that is so important because that's how more people will see your work because otherwise if they're not part of a very niche community they're they're not interested in that um, so my question for both of you then is, do you guys find that posting consistently is more important and has a higher growth rate or is it more that one post that pops off? Yeah. Um, 
so I think it's it's sort of two sided. The, the the answer depends on who you are. So me personally, I am not really looking to make a, a living off of photography, off of like my my social media photography or whatever. Um, so consistency isn't isn't important to me. Like I can take a three month break, post a photo, get a couple likes. And I'm happy and I'm content because I'm just posting it to mainly to see the few people who I want to see the photo, see it. And once they do, I'm content. Obviously, everything else that come after that is a high, is a rush, and I love it. And I always want more. Um, but if I don't get it, it doesn't affect me personally. Um, but, in, but in the case of someone who, who does need those analytics and they need high numbers and all that growth, consistency is extremely important so i have i've recently been taking quite a long break from from posting mainly because of covid and not having opportunities to shoot also because i've exhausted all of my material and, and all the times i've reposted them and when i when i repost when i made another post a few weeks back i noticed that the engagement was ext- was marginally lower than what it used to be when i was when i was posting on a, on a more semi-regular basis and again, that's fine. I loved having high engagement because it means that I had the I had the opportunity to potentially monetize all that engagement if I wanted to. Um, I don't have that now, but because I, I I stopped posting, and depending also how you have for Twitter specifically how you have your feed set up, whether it's chronological or just based on um, the algorithm, you won't see my posts if you don't have it uh, as as the latter. Uh, and that's also where Instagram fails. So if you're not posting regularly on Instagram, you could have 7,000 followers, but you'll barely get like 100 likes on your photo because the, the algorithm just goes, you're not posting that often. No one really cares about your work. You don't care about your work. So if you're in, in it for the money, you have to be consistent. Otherwise, you're not going to go anywhere. But if you're in it just for fun, post whenever you want. I think that there's like a sweet spot in between like posting when like whenever you want versus posting consistently that really kind of drives like that engagement. Um, Cause I feel like when you post like every single day there gets to a point where it's like the viewers kind of, especially if it's like you recycle pictures here and there um, it kind of, you know, you, you kind of keep swiping through it and it's like, Oh, they're like, Hey, this person posted again. Cool. But it's just kind of like constantly there. Um, and again, algorithm thing when you like hardly post at all also drives down engagement as well. But I think there's like a sweet spot in the middle where it's like maybe like a weekly or like twice a week or maybe even more than that where like when you do post, um, it's enough to kind of like get people almost excited to see your work because it feels like they haven't seen it in a couple maybe it's a couple days or maybe it's a week or something like that and so like they're kind of excited to see your work instead of it like constantly just kind of being in your face like i used to post um like in october i would post like probably once a week and that was the highest engagement i ever saw um compared to weeks when i saw when i would post every single day and I think it's because when you're constantly posting, like it, I think it also goes into when you're uh, in group chats as well, and you're sending your posts into like an, an engagement chat. I think you're more likely to get a bit more of reaction, have people like want to interact with you, if you know you're posting new work 
once a week as opposed to posting every single day and you're just constantly throwing posts in your into these group chats and stuff like that for people to you know f- to show people um i think when you're constantly kind of putting it in there it's people a little bit more you kind of just kind of want to like disregard it in a way not that that's like a bad thing i don't want it to paint i don't want to paint it that way it's whatsoever but it's just kind of a trend that i've noticed so i i have a question then if <clears throat> so Photo photo group chats have I think they've they've been a topic of discussion for for a while, especially on Twitter. Do you do you think that photo group chats are negatively affecting the the organic growth that you get on social media, or do you think that it's something that you just have to do and that it's necessary? I don't think it's something that you have to do. I don't think it's necessary, but I think it's super helpful. Like one, you you have this sense of community. You get to make friendships. Like this is how you and I met. <laughs> like you know, yeah, like it is. I think you get to to make these these real connections. And I think especially during these times of COVID, where we're not allowed to meet up, or you know, we're halfway around the world and meeting up isn't an option. You get to genuinely make true friendships in these group chats that you don't necessarily get to make and you you start building these genuine relationships and that is i think how uh you know as as with most things in life it's those true friendships that allow you to succeed and and people care because you know if you just see a name in a group chat and there you see a photo set you're like all right i mean if you like the photos sure it's great if you don't like the photos you're like i don't particularly care um, but if you're like, oh, I know this person, like I'm friends with this person, I'm going to support this person because we've had multiple conversations and then you take that relationship off of Twitter and it, it becomes, you know, you're gaming together, you're you're calling each other, you're doing a podcast with each other. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I think that's the thing. And I think for me, the sense of community you get on Twitter is, is why it's such a helpful tool. So I, you know, there's... And I think there's a distinct difference between like an engagement group chat that is solely for engaging and a genuine group chat. You know, like you can you can have engagement with a genuine group chat. But, you know, I feel like the, the group chats that are engagement only, I feel like that's not a, a word that should be attributed to that because the the few that I've been a part of, right? You just kind of like post and go. No one really cares. And in my personal experience, like I'm very rarely, unless I'm in a really good mood, I'm very rarely scrolling through these chats to see everyone's photos. And sometimes there are some pure gems, but more often than not, I've already seen them on the timeline, you know? So for me, I think the group chat is not like it was on Instagram where people are just like, like this and we'll like each other. It, it wasn't this like unspoken, like you, if you want to be part of this engagement chat, you have to like, this is purely for profit, like for gains. It's not for relationships. Whereas on Twitter, it's like you're, you're building a genuine network of relationships with genuine people who have this wonderful thing in common with you. And those friendships uh, are not only because of wanting to see numbers increase on social media but because you you've built a genuine relationship yeah i think that that's like the best part about these group chats especially like it's that stark kind of like difference between instagram and twitter where i don't know about you guys but i'm not in any group i'm in one group chat on instagram um and it's like it's a genuine group chat people like we all kind of talk and stuff like that but i think the group chats especially in twitter photography are like I think one of the larger reasons as to why and like all the connections they make in these group chats are like one of the larger reasons why the community has grown and everyone's, you know, 
become friends with each other and stuff like that um, is because of these group chats and being able to interact separately off the timeline. And I think, yeah, I mean, I'm thankfully not in any of those like solely engagement group chats. And I think, but I do think, and this is what I tell people when either I, I get messages from my friends who are into photography as well. And like, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to join the, uh, Twitter photo community. Um, like how do you think I should start getting involved? And I was like, every single time I tell them, I'm like, get into a group chat. Cause I think, cause for like the longest time I was like trying to get involved, but I was just kind of posted into the void and there was just, I wasn't able to talk to anybody. I was, didn't really know who to follow, um, stuff like that. And I think once you get into that first group chat and you start talking and making friends with people, you kind of, this unseen network opens up. Yeah, totally. It totally just gets you into that network. And once you get into that one group chat and you kind of know like who's who and like, all the, you know, just start to meet people and make those connections. It's just kind of like a gateway into like making all these friends. And it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. And like, you know, you see some negative comments on Twitter, like, oh, these photography group chats, you, you're all in niches. And like, that's like how that's, that's not how society works. And I'm like, if you look at any other facet of society, you know, people with things in common tend to like tend to stick together you know that's why you see co-workers getting beer after a long day like they're not like all right work life and social life are 100 separate you gravitate towards the people who have things in common with you like you're gonna go and get dinner with your your colleague and be like man our boss sucks because that's something you have in like (laughs) in common and then you see like why do teachers date teachers like why do models date models it's like you have that same experience and that same view of life that you're going through and you can relate to one another so yes obviously photographers are going to gravitate towards other creative people because that's what we like we're not going to be like oh i'm a photographer and i'm only going to talk to scientists that i have nothing in common with for the sake of I don't not being in a niche like that sounds dumb. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I got like I got I, like, a, like a funny example I got was like uh, when the big post went viral. Um, it happened twice. It happened twice, but there's only one time where the people actually spoke English. Um, I got added to this random group chat, and they were like, "Oh, like want to talk to me and all that stuff." And I like chatted for a little bit and stuff like that. But they like added me to this group chat without. I had no idea who any of the people were. None of them were like, I think one of them was following me another than that. And they were like talking to me and like, I was talking to them and it was, I was obviously being nice and respectful and all that, but it got to a point where it was like, I, I was like, it was like a Taylor Swift Stan group chat. I don't listen to Taylor Swift and right. And so I eventually got to the point where I was like, I was talking and they were asking me questions. I was like, yeah, cool. And they're like, Oh, we want you to stay. And I was like, I I'm sorry. I I'm not going to stay because I don't have anything in common with you guys. It's like I mean I that's ba- I didn't I just I didn't say that, but I was just like I don't have anything in common with these people, and so why would I stay? I'm gonna, you know, I've got the people that I want to talk to and interact with, and I have friends that I have things in common with. Um, I just know that if I were to stay in the group chat, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't talk. What's the point? So does that help answer your question? Yeah, I I feel like. Personally, myself, I haven't had the most positive experiences with group chats. Um, I've, I've, I also, I mean, 
I I admire group chats for what they do. Like I got my start. Like I wouldn't have met any of the people I well, Mike I added to a group chat randomly because I I thought his work was great. But I wouldn't have met yourself or you know countless other people if it wasn't for uh, the first group chat that I joined, which I will not name. Since then, you know I've 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 joined dozens of group joined and left dozens of group chat, and I've just found that overall, while yes, in, there is such a huge sense of community in there, and uh, you really get to make good friends. I feel like um, at its very core, every group chat ends up becoming an engagement chat. Um, where like if you where I personally found it, of course now my experience could be different for everyone else, but I found that if you're not posting regularly or if you're not liking everyone's content, you're not gonna get that treatment back, which is fair. But I feel like it's it's it comes to the point where people who supported me like through and through, who I did as well, if I wasn't doing it for for a few weeks for my own personal reasons, I wasn't getting that treatment back. Especially if I don't if I don't post that tweet in in the group chat, um, or even if I do. In many cases, I feel like it just gets overlooked. And I found that really like sort of eye opening. Where I went was was any of the engagement that I got actually organic because the reason I left Instagram myself was because I didn't, there was no, there was no organic engagement. Everything was like, Hey, I'll comment on your photo. You'll comment on mine. And if you don't, you're not going to get shit. So sorry for cursing. Um, and then, you know, a few months into Twitter, I blindly went, Oh my God, this is organic engagement. And then I realized, wait, no, this is, this is the same thing. Um, so like I've I've left every group chat that I was in. And I'm only in one that I started myself, and it's just where we're a bunch of buddies. Mike's in there, and while we they share posts every now and then, it's mainly mainly just friends talking to each other about completely random things, um, and that's it. And I I find that photo group chats that are made specifically for that reason end up they they might have a, a nice objective at the beginning to create a sense of community or like a small little part of it. Um, but then it just turns into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And I feel like that's inevitable for every group chat. See, in my experience, it's just like when the group chat starts to die and the genuine conversation starts to die off, that's when it, it just becomes where people send um, their posts. And that that's when a, a group chat is dead, in my opinion. Like if no one's talking, then it's like, all right, well, this is not a, a group chat anymore. This is just sending your photos into the void once again and like i think you know that's just a natural evolution like if people go in with the mentality of making friends or whatnot then it's going to stay a conversation um versus just a place to do that like when i started my own group chats i think i started one because i was super excited and uh, i invited a whole bunch of close friends in and then a couple random people because i was like you know you know i started somewhere these people start somewhere and then there's like one creepy dude and other people message me and they're like hey he's like harassing some of the girls i'm like all right blocked delete him from the group chat so that was stressful and then just like trying to maintain a healthy environment i was like this is so stressful man like i don't i don't need this in my life so that group chat quickly died because everyone just kind of stopped talking but i made great friends in that group chat so i'm very happy that it existed because i met new people that i wouldn't have otherwise but also i'm just i don't want to make group chats anymore i just want to join other people's because i'm like all right you seem like a nice person there's a conversation going on here i don't need <laughs> 
my own. Fair enough. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is stressful having group chats. But uh, one of the other things we wanted to talk about, moving on to a different topic, is uh, gear. And, you know, everyone's favorite topic is gear. And we wanted to talk about <laughs> brand loyalty specifically and how no matter what gear you're using, it's great gear unless you're using Nikon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> the knives come out immediately, eh? <laughs> I know. I, I had to hear the laugh, man. You know, I had to do it to him. <laughs> I was drinking water. Um, I almost choked on it. <laughs> I'm looking at my audacity and there's just a spike where I go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay. oh, you know, like I think the photography community loves to, to crap on Nikon. But I think, you know, that's the thing is like it, everyone is so defensive about their gear, right? Incredibly. And I think everyone... Yeah. And, and, you know, you want to feel validated and you want to, and unfortunately people need to feel validated by putting other people down. And I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, but I do it more in a joking manner. Um, but also, okay. So let me talk about my perspective. Does it feel like you're joking when you're <laughs> <laughs> most of the time? Um, no. So my perspective is right. Like I'm a massive tech nerd. Like I was a tech nerd before I started getting into photography. And this is why, like I started my YouTube channel, I like talking about tech and news and whatnot. And then when I started learning about cameras, it was this perfect fusion of like tech and creativity because I could nerd out about the tech that allowed me to create things. And I loved that. So me being the tech nerd that I was, I was doing a whole bunch of research and my first ever camera was the Nikon D3300. So I started on Nikon and loved that camera. It was a great bang for buck camera. I feel like a lot of good people start on that level of camera. And the Nikon at the time, I think, was the best entry-level camera. And so I got it. And the more I started doing video and learning about photography in full frame, um, I was doing all my research and I was like, all right, I'm looking at the offerings from Nikon and Canon and uh, Sony because those were the full frame cameras on the market. I was looking at Fuji, but I'm like, you know, I'm not going to upgrade to another APS-C size sensor. And so I was looking and doing all my research and Sony just seemed so far ahead of the game. This is when the A7R II was out and I'm like, all right, I rented it for an engagement shoot and I'm like, all right, this is a great camera, but there are some bugs and tweaks and things that I don't like. It's close to what I want, but it's not quite perfect. And then being the tech nerd that I am, I also, I love being on top of things. So I'm always looking at rumor sites, right? So I'm on Sony rumors, seeing when the next cameras are coming, what the specs could possibly be. And then Sony announced the A7R 3 And I'm like, all right, this is the perfect camera. It's the best all around camera. It's perfect for photos. It's amazing for video. It has everything I could possibly want. And I'm like, all right, I waited against what Canon and Nikon had. I'm like, this blows everything out of the water in terms of specs. And that's my perspective of how I'm coming on things, right? Like people talk about, oh, Canon colors or like the feel you get from a Nikon. And I'm like, you know, this could be the worst handling camera in the world. But if you put the bleeding edge tech in it, I'm going to buy it because that's my perspective and what I prioritize. Other people prioritize different things. And so that's totally fine. It, it, you know, we pick the gear that works for us. Definitely. And I feel like that's, that is the core essence of, of most people when they, when they pick their cameras. Um, but I, I also feel like the, the camera wars as funny and amazing as they are to pick on people. 
Um, I I feel like it's also like it's it's come to the point where people are 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 hating on cameras just because they they don't even know about it, right? So Sony like Nikon Nikon gets a lot of hate in the community, and I feel like most people don't even know why they're hating on Nikon. They just do it because they think Nikons are trash. Well, I know very well why I hate on Nikon, and it's because of many reasons. But continue. And I also feel like a lot of people when they end up buying their cameras they they buy it because of um this weird sense of um eliteness that they feel when they when they get a, a certain thing so whether they're getting a canon or a sony they go oh i'm definitely i'm getting this i'm getting a sony or a canon because i'm definitely going to be better than everyone else because i have the better camera or the the camera that has the most respect in the market. And I, and I find that really aggravating when people are actually being serious about why they hate another camera brand. See, the thing I found for the most part is people buy that initial camera, right? They don't do that much research. They see a good price. They're like, I'm in the market for a camera. They kind of just like say best cameras on the market. They type it in. They don't actually do any real research. They go to Costco. They see there's a sale and they're like, oh, the Canon is, you know, a hundred bucks cheaper than anything else. I'm going to buy the Canon. And then they start using that, they get used to it, they buy one or two lenses, and now they're in the Canon ecosystem, right? And they're like, oh, this might not, like, then they look at after that, and they actually start using their camera and seeing what else is on the market and are a proficient photographer or videographer. They're like, oh, maybe this wasn't the best choice, but I have to justify it now. I'm in too deep. And then you just kind of have that brand loyalty. You're like, oh, you know, I got used to this. And this is, you know, the same thing with like Apple MacBooks, right? They target schools. So when you're like eight years old, you're using your first Mac and you're like, oh, I get accustomed to this. And then, you know, all throughout your school days, you're using the Mac and then you get out to university and you're like, what am I going to buy? A Mac. This is what I'm familiar with. This is what I know. You get out to the workforce and you're like, I'm going to use a Mac. This is what I know. This is what I'm familiar with. This is what I'm most proficient with. And then you're just going to crap on PCs because you're like, I am better with Macs. I prefer Macs. And that's the beautiful thing for me about being a tech nerd is because, you know, I think a lot of people have that massive amount of brand loyalty. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the tech I buy, but also I'm not above pointing out flaws. And like for a very long time, Apple had been dropping the ball and I was very vocal about that, even though I was a huge Apple fan from a tech perspective, they weren't making good products. And, you know, the same with Sony, like even lately, I was on another podcast recently and talking about how, you know, at the time when I got into the Sony ecosystem, they were at the absolute bleeding edge. And I feel like as of late, they've been resting on their laurels a little bit. They're allowing the competition to catch up a little bit. And that's not what I'm liking. I want them to keep pushing the envelope, but we'll see in these next gen cameras if they actually continue to do that or if they kind of play it a little bit more safe. But Mike, what are your thoughts on this? Your team Sony or you? I was I was gonna ask that. I was gonna ask you guys. So Mark, I take it you're Sony, right? I am a Sony shooter. Yes. Okay. Yes. And Bobber, I you're a Nikon, right? I yeah. remember we talked about mm -hmm. this. Yes. You're Nikon. So we I got know. the three factions. We have. I'm a Canon shooter. Oh, we do have okay. all so three. So we got we got all three mm -hmm. factions here. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so my first camera was actually a Nikon. I my I I bought it when it was a point and shoot. It was the Nikon P nine hundred, which is a, it's a little point and shoot. Um, and I got it when I knew nothing about photography. It was my first camera that I got. 
when I stopped, when I was like, okay, I don't want to shoot pictures on my phone anymore. I want to actually get a real camera and actually kind of try this out, try out photography and see what I can do with it. And um, I got it. Only two things I knew at the time when I got it were price tag and the zoom, like zoom effect. I didn't even know what focal length was. All I knew was like, oh, this time zoom, cool. And I bought it. And as I kind of started to learn new thing, learn, you know, about the specs and everything else about photography, I kind of noticed the downsides of it. And that's when I switched on over to Canon. Um, and I've been Canon ever since. I started off with a, I switched from the Nikon and the first Canon I got was the uh, 80D, uh, the uh, fantastic camera, um, you know, the crop sensor. Uh, even even though it's crop sensor, it performs fantastic in low light. Um, I arguably better than the camera I use now. Um, and I use now I use the Canon 5 DSR, also an insane camera. Um, but yeah, I mean I'm not one for like brand loyalty necessarily. I think for me at this point, the reason why I stick to Canon, I mean I love the Canon cameras. I don't only I would I think. I would only switch to if I would if I were to switch. I think it would just be too much of a hassle for me to having to sell all of my Canon gear because I have so much of it, um, and having to rebuy all those lenses is just kind of almost too much of a hassle for me at this point. But like the whole brand loyalty thing is not something I'm necessarily like. I don't necessarily fall into that. And like yeah, I kind of join in on some of the jokes and stuff like that. But yeah, it's for me it's purely that nothing but yeah. jokes. Um, and I think, like, right now, the industry is in a really interesting spot, right? Because both Nikon and Canon have recently come out with their first slash second iteration of their mirrorless cameras. They have a new mount, they're experimenting with new technology, they're trying to catch up to the competition. And so for a lot of people who have a DSLR and are thinking about upgrading to mirrorless, this would be the time to switch brands. Because if you want to get into the new native lens mount you don't necessarily want to be using adapters and whatnot. And so for a lot of people, I've been seeing the switch from Canon to Sony or from Nikon to Sony because of the lenses and whatnot. And I, that's the thing too, is like people, a lot of people ask me about like what cameras to buy because I'm that tech nerd, right? And so I try and give the best advice I can and I, I lay everything out for every single brand. I'm like, all right, here are the pros and cons, here are the pros and cons. I personally pick Sony because it's the best overall, both for photo and video, but not everyone's looking for photo and video. Maybe they're just looking for photo. Maybe they're just looking for video. And so, you know, I tailor it to what their needs are, but I explain like some people are like, oh, if I buy the, the new, um, Nikon mount I have to I can still use my Nikon lenses I'm like yeah you can but then the adapter comes in you take a little bit of a hit on autofocus capability and they're like oh then I'll just buy native lenses and I'm like all right well if you're considering just like selling all your gear and buying all new gear then you're starting from ground zero again you know like this again would be the opportune time to switch brands so it's an interesting time in the industry for me and um the reason why I just like Nikon has been a very interesting company to watch, right? Because they're the only company that's purely photo. They don't do anything else. And that's why they've been getting hit the most. No, they don't touch exactly. video. I mean, they do. They 
do like they have video in their cameras but it's not the best on the market but what i'm saying is like if you look at canon right like they have printing they have other cameras they have uh you know they have a whole other industry and if you look at sony obviously one of the biggest companies in the world they do phones laptops (laughs) playstations like this is they're large companies that can afford to take a hit on losses when it comes to their photo video division nikon can't afford to take losses because that's their entire company and they've just like i i was reading something recently that they're about to like declare bankruptcy or whatnot and it's been interesting for me seeing this this mirrorless revolution and how they're not catching up fast enough like their first iterations with the z6 and z7 fell very short for me like they were lacking a lot of features you'd expect and like their dslrs were still far superior the d850 the best dslr to ever exist arguably and i love that camera i think that's one of the best dslrs ever made arguably one of the best cameras ever made but then for them to not actually if for me nikon felt like they were dipping their toes in the mirrorless without going all in and then realized they were late and attempted to dive in but belly flopped and so it was it's just very hard to recommend a product when you're spending that much money that doesn't hold up to the competition definitely i agree yeah i think i think it's um you know i just want to kind of bounce off you talking off the uh, nikon mirrorless um my boss slash mentor um slash sensei slash uh you know guy who teaches me who's taught me everything i know about landscape photography uh, his name is rashid danoon he's a national he shot for national geographic he's lives just about 30 minutes from me and him and i have been working together for almost a year now um he is a nikon shooter um He's on like the Nikon 100 list. I don't know, but um, he so he shoots Nikon. Um, he's always shot Nikon. He loves. He really likes Nikon. But yeah, I mean, he got the um, the Z6, and I used it. I've used the Z6 as well, and we actually uh, I helped him put up the listing, but we recently sold it um, just because it just did not meet that level that was needed. I used it to shoot a um, I used it to shoot a as like a B cam to shoot this like little. Um, this little commercial for a brand and just kind of ran into some problems and it just didn't quite hit that mark. So it's kind of funny that you use, you know, the Z6 is like a, like as a specific camera as like a um, example for a mirrorless that didn't necessarily hit the mark because yeah, I mean, I have personal experience with that. My boss has personal experience with that. And um, I completely agree, and I really hope that they. I do like Nikon. Um, the times that I have used the cameras, I've had no complaints other than the for that Z6. Um, and I hope that the next iteration of that mirrorless really does hit that mark that they need to hit. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like the next. So they've already come out with the Z6 II and the Z7 II, and they both again fall short because they're the exact same camera with very minor improvements, but they're still living in like. 2017 and i'm like you can't be charging full price for a second generation product that's already four years out of date the funny thing is though their entry level camera the z5 i are, think is the best camera they make right now I was and just i'm like who say would that. pay money <laughs> for the z6 and the z7 <laughs> the z5 is clearly the superior camera you're getting better colors you have dual sd card slots you get a much better everything is better in that camera and it's the cheapest camera so that's the thing is like i don't Like, I'm not crapping on Nikon. I'm just coming at this from a technical, best bang for buck money perspective. And their offerings are not up to snuff. 
And I, this is why, you know, I don't consider it Nikon hate. I'm just pointing out facts that, you know, when you're weighing the $2,000 entry-level full-frame camera, Nikon is not the way to go. Yeah, I, f- I feel like for mirrorless Nikon, you should you should definitely shouldn't consider it. Um, unless you're, like, incredibly loyal to Nikon, you want to stick with them, sure. They're decent cameras. They'll, they'll do the job for you. But I feel like in terms of, like, for me personally, like, I, I think, Mark, you, you said this a little while back that, the camera you choose depends entirely on what you shoot um, and also depends on what you want to shoot or potentially shoot in the future. So for me, I know that I'm not really... And what you prioritize. Exactly. So I don't do portraits. So for me, I don't need, I don't, I don't care about skin tones, which Canon is super... You don't care about eye autofocus. I don't don't care about about eye autofocus with Sony. For me, it's about low light, it's about dynamic range and it's about build quality. And if, for me, Nikon checks the li- checks the boxes for all three of those. Build quality. Like I've I've dropped my Nikon. I have I've I've taken that thing out in in, in negative forty degree weather, in snowstorms, and rainstorms, and the thing without without a cover on it, and the thing pr- has never died on me. The battery life is fantastic. The low light is unbelievable. And for me, it works. Yeah, like I can confidently say that Nikon and Canon definitely have Sony beat when it comes to build quality. I would much rather, like if I'm going trekking in the Arctic and beating this camera to hell, I'd much rather have like a Nikon D5 or a 1DX Mark III than a Sony A9 because I know it's not going to take the same amount of beating. But also, you know why the low light is so good on uh, (laughs) Nikon cameras? So I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. (laughs) Because they're using Sony. <laughs> so here's the thing, actually. So I, so I, I, I kept getting that response a bunch, and I'm like, let me research this because I wasn't too sure. So Sony manufactures Nikon's sensors, yes, yes, but those aren't Sony sensors. So the, the no, sensors yeah, are so- designed entirely by Nikon, and they're simply manufactured by Sony. Sony. Sony camera has no well, some, access to some Nikon. Some of them are. Some from of what are. I so read, some of the cameras, some so some of the cameras, it's like they literally buy the same sensor as like the A7R three or the R four, and then just like do their own color science and whatnot with that one. Uh, some of them they design from the ground up, and Sony manufactures them. So that's why some of these charts between the Sony and Nikon cameras are like literally almost identical because they're using the exact same sensor, just with slight tweaks. Hmm. And that's because Nikon is definitely a smaller brand compared to Sony, which is just a behemoth. So props to Nikon for outsourcing. (laughs) Yeah, but like that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like Sony Sony is the number one sensor uh, creator on the market. Like when you use an iPhone, it's using a Sony sensor, you know? Like it's not, it's not like, oh, Nikon's, it's not this massive sacrilegious thing that Nikon It's a is, good thing. It's a I good find thing. I find that exactly. people use it as a disc. It's like, okay, that's a good thing that I'm using. I and have no, a exactly. Sony sensor exactly. in my thing. But yeah, you know, you pull out an iPhone, it's using a Sony sensor. You you look at like this, this LiDAR tech that like Tesla is using, probably using a Sony sensor. Like <laughs> all this kind of stuff is like Sony is the number one manufacturer and it's not just for full frame DSLR cameras or full frame mirrorless it's for <laughs> everything on the market like Canon is one of the few people who actually make their own sensors and that's why they're behind when it comes to dynamic range 
<laughs> I wish they used Sony. <laughs> I feel like Canon, Nikon, and Sony should combine. I, yeah, I do, and that's why I was. I that's why I was just gonna mention that was like, I that's part of the reason why I've been kind of struggling so much with uh, my landscape work as of recently is because the dynamic range on my Canon is brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rest of the industry is at like 15, 16 stops. Canon's still at twelve, and you're like, bruh. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, I like even today I ran into that issue, and the only time I actually ever got like a properly exposed image was like 10, 15 minutes after dusk, and anything else before that it was either like sky was completely blown out, the uh, foreground and the ground was completely dark, um, or e- even both at the same time, and that's kind of been I've been struggling with that so hard recently. I've just been like, man. If this dynamic range was that of a Sony, I could totally be doing it like I'd be rolling right now. But it's it's been it's been a struggle. Yeah, no. And that's that's why I like Sony, because technically they are the best that they're on the bleeding edge. And that's what I like about it. They're they're definitely not the best in every aspect. But in the things that I care about as a massive spec nerd, they're leading the industry. And that's what I love. But uh, it was really funny because I was recently doing an iPhone 12 versus Sony camera comparison video on YouTube. And it was really funny at the comment section. Some of them were like, oh, you should label the photos because we can't tell the difference. And I'm like, isn't that the point? Like, <laughs> like that's kind of scary that you can't tell the difference. Am I right? It's crazy how good phone cameras have gotten over the past like five years. Like it's terrifying. Yeah, that's, it's, that's the thing. Like I was... It is terrifying, but at the same time, it's mind-blowing. And for me, just with that, the, the dynamic range on the iPhone was literally, it, it wasn't even a competition. The dynamic range just, and this is shooting JPEG, right? Like just threw hands against the Sony and obliterated it. It wasn't even a competition. The iPhone dynamic range shooting JPEG was so far ahead of the Sony camera. And that comes down to computational photography. You know, when an iPhone takes a photo, it's like 15 different layers all stacked into one and then some AI magic with with any camera on the market. You're just taking one single exposure with that one sensor read and that's it. And so I think if the camera industry wants to stay ahead and actually exist in the future, they need to start bringing that phone computational photography into their big cameras and yes they'll probably get more expensive they're going to need more processing power and we're starting to see that with like the eye autofocus and computational photography in that way but that's just a very small portion of it like you know if we're already talking about how iphones are (laughs) laying the smack down in terms of other aspects it's not going to be too long until these manufacturers are like oh we really need to do something if we want a niche in this market anymore I feel like Sony will do it. The one thing that I do, and it's something that's obviously, you know, everyone knows Canon as like the fantastic color performance, right? And I think kind of bouncing back on my issue with the dynamic range on those Canon sensors um, is like, and I think that's also kind of the, I don't, I don't share all that much work. Um, I, cause just cause I don't have a whole lot of work to share. I don't shoot as much as I would like to um, and for other reasons as well. But it's like those times whenever I do get a shot that um, I really like compositionally and just if I get the exposure, if the exposure is right, um, given that dynamic range, uh, the colors on it are absolutely insane. And I think that's why that's what I can attribute like like my like I think I personally have very good uh, quality of color in my images and 
Um, I think that's largely attributed to that quality of color is just how good that Canon sensor is at excelling at that because, you know, it's like we've talked about, it's used for portraits um, because of the ability to capture like those skin tones and like that color so nicely to where when you apply that to landscape photography, it makes those colors pop like crazy. Um, and I think that's why I like as long as it, hopefully they increase that dynamic range and kind of get up to, to up to par um, compared to the other brands. Hopefully they catch up. And I mean, if they do, I plan on sticking to Canon for sure. I've heard rumors about Canon developing new sensor tech that would actually level the playing field. So I'm intrigued to see their next generation cameras, especially the rumored R1 that's going to be coming out. That's going to be like their mirrorless 1DX3. I'm very intrigued to see what that is going to entail and what that is capable of doing. But for me, the argument of color has always been kind of weird, right? Because like if you shoot raw, and you're able to edit, and you're a, a capable editor, you can make any brand look like any brand if you know what you're doing, right? It's not that difficult. And I've shot with every brand. I've edited other people's photos with every brand. And, you know, you can achieve the same exact result with very minor tweaks in Lightroom and Photoshop. Like, it's not some mind-blowing, like, oh, the Canon colors are so good, you're never going to... It's like, nah, you, you do one little layer adjustment, and it's like, all right, we're good. We're the same. I do want to say, though, like especially with the previous generation cameras, the Canon highlight roll-off is something I really loved because that was far more natural. And even though the dynamic range wasn't as good as the other cameras, because of that highlight roll-off, it looked more natural and gave the perception of better dynamic range. Because even though technically the Sony would have better dynamic range on paper and in lab tests, when you look at the photos side by side, even with editing, I found the much harsher highlight roll off to just be more difficult and it didn't look as natural and some that was especially noticeable to me in video when I was using my Sony camera compared to other cameras and I was like man like this is again where like technically you'll have something that is superior but in use not necessarily the most superior and you know you have the argument about the new Canon menus versus Sony menus and all that and it was funny because when Canon came out with their new C70, their entry-level uh, cinema camera, which is a great camera, people were complaining. They're like, these menus are too complicated. And this is can coming from, you know, lifetime Canon users. And the funny thing is, it, it was all the same complaints they had with the Sony menus. It wasn't necessarily the menu. It was just that there's so much customization available that it was overwhelming for a lot of people. And they were like, I didn't know I needed this level of customization. I just kind of want to hit a button and go. But that's what I loved about Sony cameras. Like, yeah, sure, the menus aren't great, but you go into them, you set up your camera, and after two weeks, you never need to go back into the menus ever again. And then you have a, a great camera that's fit to your specific needs. So again, it's just, you know, pros and cons for everything. So yes, I think the, the, the camera crapping on their camera brands, I think for me mostly is jokes. Cause like, I know where I stand and I know the pros and cons of everything. I like, just because I'm a Sony nerd doesn't mean that I, I don't love nerding about every other camera on the market. Like this is why I'm able to talk about Nikon. This is why I'm able to talk about Canon is cause I like learning every single aspect of these new cameras that are coming out. Like when the, the US R5 and R6 came out, I was like, you know, this could be the new best camera on the market. Like it has amazing video features, amazing photo features. And then all the cripple hammers started showing up and I'm like, well, still not useful as a professional tool. They tried, 
And recently, actually, Canon got in some hot water over the fact that one of their marketing PR people kind of hinted at the fact that the only reason the EOS R5 had 8K was for marketing purposes, to be able to slap that 8K on there. And I hate it when brands are like, oh, our camera has this capability, and then it's like some crippled, non-usable thing. And I'm worried. Yeah, Tara, I'm worried because the A9 III, the A9 Mark III, rumored right now to be you know, a relatively high megapixel camera that's capable of shooting 8K. And I'm like, you know, I want this to be true. I'm not going to be able to afford that camera. I don't have five grand to spend on a camera. That camera is not marketed at me. But I really hope that if they do, if those rumors are true, that that 8K is somewhat usable. And if it's not, just ax it completely. We don't need another Canon EOS R5 situation where it's not a real feature and it's just some gimmick. We need it to be either real and usable or just take it out and just neglect it. Like, we don't need these fancy features for people to buy it. Most people buying a camera aren't buying a camera for 8K. If you're looking at that, look at a cinema camera. So I just hope that these companies realize that the consumer is not all about buzzwords and that they're actually just making a good product. It's funny you said that. I've had a lot of people ask me, like... Hey, what camera should I get? Blah blah blah. And I've it's ironically I very rarely ever um, recommended an icon, uh, mainly because they're just like, I, yeah, you know, I, I kind of like video too. And I'm like, all right, well, there you go. Um, and even if if someone says they want to do photo, I'm like, all right, what kind of stuff? Portraiture. All right, go Canon. You know, it's just like there. It's like I I love my Nikon, and I'm not like brand loyal to them. Like I would if I would leave for anything, I would leave for for Panasonic. They gave me their S1R to use of, of, of a year or two back, and I fell in love. And hey, uh, Panasonic, if you're listening to this, please give me one again. Thank you. Um, oh, it's so good. But yeah, so like, if you want an icon, you have to be in a very particular niche um, of of photography and of needs and wants. If you if you fit that, go an icon. But if you're like. 95% of the rest of the population who want a camera that can do everything else, there you, there's much better choices out there than an icon. I think I wish the route that um, a lot of camera brands took was, I wish they really took the route of, at least on a professional level, like um, uh, doing, you know, a video and a photo camera. So that way they can just really focus on that quality, especially for like, especially like as me, who is like a photographer doesn't shoot video, but hopes to do so soon. Um, I really wish that they had, instead of like dumping a lot of like their funding and stuff like that into, um, into, you know, going for the AK video and stuff like that and flopping on it. I wish that they would just take the time and really develop something that takes insane, incredible stills as opposed to trying to do like this two-in-one action or stuff like that, I really wish that they would just do a, a camera that absolutely excels in in stills and then one that excels in photos or in, sorry, um, video as yeah. well. Well, that's the issue with Canon, right? Is because they always protect their cinema line because that's what they're aiming for for that price point for to be dedicated video cameras. And that's why they've been so... Uh, neglectful of their video features in their their photography cameras even though that's the way the industry is going i feel like more and more people are buying cameras they're using it more for video than they are photo and 
I think they realize that once again, the smartphones are, are taking a lot of that, that photography away, but most people are upgrading because they want better video. You know, they're starting TikTok, they're starting YouTube. They want that video functionality and they're like, well, you know, we're not going to be able to market a five to $20,000 cinema camera to people who are just wanting to get a better video camera. So we're going to put these features into mirrorless cameras. Um, and then like you said, like you, you have these half baked features that don't quite work. And I think Sony is doing it right again there. Like they're, they're putting great video features in all of their cameras, but then they each camera line has its pros and cons. Like you have the Sony a7S line, right? Dedicated, like it takes photos, not meant for photos, dedicated video line in a small mirrorless body that has the quality of their cinema line, which is great. Only 12 megapixels though. So great low light, not a good photo camera. Don't use it for photos. Then you have their A7 line. That's like the best of both worlds. Pretty high resolution, you know, 20 to 30 megapixels. Pretty good in low light. Takes great photo and video. Not the best build quality, but like best of both worlds. This is where most people are going to land. Then you have the R lineup. That's like practically dedicated photos. Again, it has the same video functionality as the A7 lineup, but you know, definite more focus on photo aspect. And because of the high resolution, it's going to suffer in low light. But, you know, who cares when you have 60 plus megapixels and you have the A9 that's just like the 1DX Olympic level stuff that's just all about speed. And it's like, all right, you know, I need to capture 50 photos of Usain Bolt running the 100 meters. This is the camera I need. So I think the way that they segmented it is very helpful. Whereas the other companies with Canon, they just have like the two bodies, the R6 and the R5 now that are genuine um, professional level bodies, but as stills cameras, absolutely amazing. Great value for what you're getting because you're getting 20 frames per second, that's crazy. But video is just not usable in a professional setting, so that's unfortunate. And then Nikon, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, no, then Nikon has no cinema line to protect. So they're just shoving all of these video aspects in there, which is great. And the video was arguably like they have raw video output. They were the first to do raw video output via HDMI. And that was so cool. And I remember when they did that, I was like, oh, my God, like this is a, this is a massive hack. You're getting cinema level quality if you have a five hundred dollar monitor. That's so cool. And it was just awesome that they were able to do that because they were like, we don't freaking care. We're going to put all the video specs in here because we're not protecting a cinema line. And I think that's great. Uh, but you know, it was just without that monitor, it wasn't a val like a valuable thing. And most people, you know, they want autofocus. They want the ease of use features that you're not getting in that situation. So, you know, again, every company has its pros and cons, but you're going to pick the camera that's best for you and best suited for your needs. You know, like I've had conversations with people where I have recommended Canon cameras cause that's what they need. They're like, I'm never going to shoot video in my life ever. And I'm already deep in the Canon ecosystem. What do I get? I'm like, all right, go for the R6. It's a great camera. Yeah, no, I'm just a, <laughs> sorry for ranting. I'm a massive tech nerd. I love nerding out about this kind of stuff. Tech's great. Tech's fun. Yeah, no, tech is fun. Like, I, I love tech. And like, speaking of tech, like these new MacBook Pros that are being swirled around in the rumor sphere, the 14 inch and 16 inch with the new M1 or M1X or M2 chips. Oh yeah, my this God, I'm is so what we've been waiting for. for and for me, like, this is the thing, right? I'm a huge tech nerd. I'm excited. I was very, 
hopefully optimistically skeptical about the M1 chips. And then they came out and they blew me away. And I'm like, all right, I was thinking I would wait three to four years to buy one when they actually got all their stuff together. But they got the ball rolling real fast and it looks like they're going to be good to go within like under two years. So now that these 14 and 16 inch MacBook Pros are being floated around, I'm like, I might need to get a new 16 inch, even though I just got a 2019 16 inch, you know, kind of hurts the wallet, but I'm excited. But I'm more excited about about them making an entry level Mac Pro. So like a Mac Pro that most people can afford, because right now they're, they're still keeping Intel for for their Pro grade. But if they make one that that too, yes, I heard about that. Which would be great, yeah, you know, not, not, yeah, <laughs> yes, for their big, yeah, for their big one, is an M1 or M2 or whatever, yeah, that'd be great, like a, a reasonable, like, between, you know, it's going to be higher end, it's going to be better than their iMac, their all-in-ones, but I think if they keep it between 2000 and $5,000 instead of 5000 and $50,000, it'll be a very viable machine, and I think that is what is definitely going to be intriguing but the thing i love that not many photographers and videographers are talking about the all, all of course all of the cool stuff that's coming with the m1 and apple silicon is great but no one's really talking about the fact that with these m1 chips you now have the ability to edit and actually use h265 footage which for you people i don't know if you're doing video that much is a huge deal <laughs> Uh, again, I, I'll reiterate, I'm a Nikon user. I don't know what video is. Stop motion, puppeteers, shadow figures. That's what I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, time lapses. Yeah, no, so H.264 is what the industry has been using for a very long time. That's practically what every camera shoots, H.264. That's what your computer can handle. And, you know, it's, it's a fine file format. H.265... Uh, halves the amount of space. So if you had a 10 gigabyte file with H.264, it's now a five gigabyte file on H.265, but you retain all of the same detail, if not more, just with better compression. The issue with that is that the way that it compresses it, it compresses it at the source. So your camera has a way more, like your SD card has way more space to shoot in. It's a lighter file that way space-wise. But when you get it on your computer, your computer has to then unpack that. So instead of, you know, one fold going from 10 to 5 gigabytes, it's like 100 folds. So your computer now has to unfold that thing 100 times. So it's a lot more processor intensive. So that's why it's not really a viable option to shoot because your computer has to do all the heavy lifting and it's not meant for that. And so um, with these new M1 chips, they're actually able to smoothly edit it. So now you're able to get half the file size but still be able to use it and i think that's super impressive and i'm sure that they're going to do um optimization with, on the photo side as well in just to, in terms of how that works out so i'm really excited to see that that sounds crazy good and i i really do hope they they optimize photoshop and and, and lightroom i know apple does work with them quite, quite is working with them quite closely from what i've read um so so any optimization there would would be fantastic. Like right now, my PC still still you still works Lightroom and Photoshop better. Um, I can use it. I can still run much larger files on there than I can on my MacBook. Um, and I am looking to upgrade my MacBook in the next year or two. So 
if those M, those new M1s or whatever the, they call the M's in the 14 and 16 inch are optimized for Photoshop and Lightroom, I'm I'm just gonna complete. I'll, I'll just delete it from my PC and switch right to there. Exactly. No, when you're in the market for a new one, hit me up and I will tell you whether or not it's like the time to get one or the new ones. You're like it's a it's a it's just a very exciting time to be an Apple fanboy, but also a computer fanboy because these M1 chips. When you compare them to any, again, best bang for buck text perspective, these M1 chips wipe the floor with everything, right? Like you have an entry level $1,000 MacBook Air that's suddenly competing with a $5,000 desktop. And you're like, how the hell is that even possible? (laughs) I know. And that makes me scared for when they release a $50,000 M1 Mac Pro. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? You're going to be like, oh my God. It's going to be like supercomputer level speed. It literally, that's the thing. And I think that's where the best bang for buck again comes in handy. Like you start seeing this, you know, $1,500 to $4,000 range is suddenly competing at a much higher price point. The rest of the PC industry really has to bring its top guns, and I don't see Intel or AMD doing that anytime soon. So Apple really has a nice thing going for it right now. Steve Jobs will be proud. Yeah, 100%. This is this is the revolution we've been waiting for. And with this M1 integration, it now means that your iPad and iPhone and you know your AirPods are now more integrated at, than ever before. So everything is more seamless. Like in a in an ideal future. You're going to be able to start editing a photo on your laptop, then go to the bathroom, continue editing it on your iPhone with full functionality, not some watered down mobile thing. Then, you know, hop in the car on your iPad, continue editing exactly where you left off. Like, that's insane. I I cannot wait for that. But again, you know, we have to wait. The future of Apple looks pretty pretty. Exactly. This is an ideal future that we're all hoping and waiting for. But we'll see how that ends up going and i'm excited to see where tech goes because i'm a massive tech nerd so <laughs> yeah where tech goes where social media goes yeah. especially with clubhouse now yes um, let's talk about that clubhouse so is fantastic very interesting so, much fun. so what has your experience been with that mike you invited me to clubhouse so you should start this conversation not gonna lie did i invite you i did i did you, <laughs> dude i, I totally forgot you, mm. um but <laughs> Um, but yeah, I got invited. I heard about Clubhouse. Um, I forget who I heard it from, but it was someone outside of the photo community. And I was kind of put it on my radar. This is like two weeks ago or something like that. And because Clubhouse is super new, like as it blew up like this week. And um, I heard about it about two weeks ago. And I kind of had it on my radar, but I didn't really think twice of it. And then I heard a couple people in the photo community. Um, talking about it, and I was like, "Oh, you know what? I uh, I'll I'll get it. I'll jump in on it. I'll you know I like to I like to use the term early adopter. Um, someone you know jumping on something early before everyone else does. Um, and so I jumped on it. Um, and there was like the whole wait line, and I was like, ah, you know this this sucks. Um, and then I kind of I heard about the whole invite thing, got asked on. Um, and uh, Carlos invited me to it. Um. And, um, yeah, I started using it. I've only chatted a couple of times. Uh, I missed that big, that big clubhouse. Um, uh, what are you going to call it? Call chat room. I don't know what you, what they're called, but, um, I missed that one, but I mean, I mean, it's a blast. I mean, I love it. It's kind of, it gives you like that podcast kind of a feel to it. Um, but it lets, you know, 
anybody kind of jump in and chime in and say whatever they want to say and then they can leave whenever they want which i think is sweet i think that's cool and i think it also allows for another level of connection than just talking over uh like text um like you do on twitter and group chats or you know normal text messages or anything like that it's a it's a new form of uh it's you know talking face to face but it lets you meet new people in the process as opposed to other ways of voice communication that don't necessarily do that uh, i think that's really cool i so Mar- mike invited me to clubhouse i think like three or four days ago now and at first i was i was very hesitant to get on the app because i'm like this seems super sketchy. Yeah, so anyway, I knew I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I, I saw a bunch of tweets saying Clubhouse is, is really great. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I hit a mic. I'm like, Mike, get me on this. And at like two seconds later, I just got an invite. Like, I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, so I got on it and I hopped in a few chats the first day and I just kind of got a basic gist of it. And it was cool. It was interesting. I saw a lot of like, uh, big creators that I, that I followed and look up to. So, uh, no way Jose, Sierra Dici, I saw Maddie, uh, in one. I also saw Casey in another, I believe. And I'm like, this is so cool being able to like hop in, in the chat where these huge influential people are talking and you can just listen. So like, it made me go that there is, there's so much potential to clubhouse and the information that you can gather for free is insane. Um, and then yes, yesterday no the day before um i was i was i was bored and i'm like i want to start my own clubhouse room so i made one and i pinged a few people and uh, i had i had nicholas one of my buddies joined in and we were chatting for a few minutes and then uh, and then mk hopped in and she's just like i'm at work but i'm just going to be listening in to you guys talk and over the next two hours we had almost like 30 people in there and we were all and this randomly popped in like I, it wasn't I, I made a tweet, but I didn't really know how to invite people. So I'm like, hey, you can join my clubhouse room. And we ended up we had a few people that I knew who came in, but then the, everyone else was just complete random people. And it was it was so cool being able to 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 talk to them and to listen to their their experiences on Twitter, on Instagram and how they got into photography, what their favorite photos was. We did a really cool exercise, which I will make you guys do at the end of this podcast. Um, but it was, I, I found it to be really, really interesting. I feel like Clubhouse has so much potential. I, However, I, I don't think that it's going to be very long lasting for some reason, personally. Um, it just, I, I get that kind of gut feeling. But I feel like for the time being, if you really want to, learn about photography and or just whatever genre you want this this is the place to be but it's it's also very limited because it's invite only um so it can be very restricted i didn't i don't think i even got any invites so i couldn't find anything for that so i think that part sucks about it the exclusivity um but I feel like Clubhouse Clubhouse has a lot, has a lot of potential for, for greatness, for sure. Oh, um, I, I'm just saying I hope that they uh, they really kind of ramp things up now um, and just kind of keeping things fresh, adding new features. Um, you know, maybe so, – I don't know. Do they have a reactions feature or something like that? Like I hope that they – No, they need a reaction feature. They need a they chat need a box. chat box. They need Yeah, they need things. that. They need a poll feature. There, There's a bunch of things they can do to keep it fresh and fun, and I think if they don't do that, I can see it being very short-lived. And I do hope they do that because I really like this concept. Um, and yeah, but yeah, I mean, kind of Bob, going off of what you were saying though, like about you know, like big people using this and like uh, like someone huge who uses, uses a lot and I follow on there just because I thought it was kind of cool was uh, 21 Savage uses it and he uses it 
all the really? time. And it's hilarious. So all of a sudden I jumped on a I joined one and there was like a hundred people watching it and like fifty people were like talking in it. And he was just in there talking just like any other member in there. And that aspect of it I think is so cool. Just to be able like to be like and that's like, you know, it's bigger if you're a fan of the person or something like that. But to be able to interact with somebody of that level just on a, you know, on a level basis of like that, um, cause there's no verified people. There's no like, oh, like this guy has a lot of fo- I mean, like those followers, stuff like that. But it's not like, a, you know, it kind of takes away like that interesting, like like that uh, that hype dynamic to it and kind of puts everyone on equal like footing which i think is really cool um and yeah that was just something i, I kind of picked up on and i wanted to bounce that off of um what you had said earlier but yeah mark you can go ahead so yeah no i think it's very interesting right so when i first started hearing about this i was like this kind of sounds dumb i'm not gonna lie like i straight up was like this this sounds like a, a bad podcast you know like why would i want to listen to some muffled people talking through a phone via bad wi-fi and i was like i was not a fan like you know i was like if if i wanted to gain this information i could just listen to a podcast or watch a youtube video right but the more i've used it i've warmed up to it but i still you know have my doubts about it and i think bobber you had a point where you were like you know i don't see this being having long longevity and i i keep seeing on twitter right like people love it but at the same time they're like you know i think this is a covid thing i think when covid goes away well <laughs> We don't know how long that's going to be, <laughs> but uh, it could and, be a very, it could be, yeah, in America, goes away. it could be a while, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, they, I think, pe- like, that was a valid point for me, that, like, this is a, a COVID-related thing that people feel the need to connect, and they need an outlet to interact with other people, and this is a good platform to do that, but then I, I hopped in in this, this one, these two um, different rooms, one was, like, this massive YouTuber one, and Mr. Beast was in there, and... Um, like a lot of big creators were on there answering questions and talking about stuff and most of the stuff you know like I've heard before they've they've said before and if you've listened to podcasts or watch YouTube videos about it they it's this is not new information but there were some like really cool gems and just being able to bounce ideas off each other and seeing how one creator interprets things versus other creators interpret things and then you know being able to bring listeners to ask their own questions I thought was super interesting and then again like you said mike the the even playing field for celebrities versus average joes it it's a nice thing like it's a level playing field it's not like oh let's worship this one person it was like all right we're all just human we're all just having a conversation i really like that i was a part of a different one though with daniel schiffer and that one was more like really interesting because he was obviously the biggest creator in there and so everyone was just asking him questions even though there were like 20 other speakers and i was like all right you know clearly people they want to know from the one with the most subscribers which i get but uh you know there's a lot of other untapped potential in this speaker group that no one's really asking the questions of and then for me, it feels like, like I've joined a couple of ones with the Twitter homies and we just have like a grand old time conversation. And then it's just like a conference call or like a discord call or anything like that. It's just, you know, we're just hanging out. We're not necessarily talking about anything useful, um, which is fun. But like, I, again, I feel like this app is interesting, but 
it's, you know, you listen to a podcast, you have a conference call, you have Discord, all these things already exist. But I think if, like you said, if they're able to bring these new features that we love and expect from all these other platforms, it could have potential. I think for me personally, the biggest issue is sound quality. If you're going to have a audio only platform and you're only using iPhone mic or AirPods mics, it's not as enjoyable of an experience. Like it, it gives it that really like conference call vibe, which I'm not a fan of. But if they get like a desktop version and allow you to plug in professional mics, I think it becomes a whole different game changer. Like I would love to listen to someone talking through like a Shure SM7B and not, you know, AirPods Max while they're in their car, you know, like I would love that. I think that would make it far more like that would be live stream and then it would become like Twitch podcasts and I would love that. I think that would be much more, you know, entertaining and viable. See, I, I, I love the idea of that. Of, of bringing a, a sense of professionalism to it. But I also feel like the entire essence of Clubhouse is that, like, like my point, it, it's it's to level out the playing field in terms of status. So I feel like if, if there's a bunch of people in the room and, you know, three or four of them sound like they're sitting in a, in a, in like a professional studio booth um, and everyone else is wearing AirPods in, in their car, I feel like that, that can create, that it'll create this subconscious division of, okay, these guys are obviously so much better and we should only listen to them because one, you can, you can definitely hear them better. Um, so you're, you're, you're better, you're easily able to make out what they're saying. So, and, and in doing so, you, you'll, you'll, it'll create this division between the groups. And I feel like that will, I feel like that'll hurt Clubhouse more. Uh, maybe if there was a premium version of Clubhouse, um, or like if it's a desktop only one, that would make sense, I suppose. But I feel like if, if they do that, where you can have your quote unquote professional audio stuff there, it'll just, it'll, it'll, it'll create too much divide and it, it might cause a bunch of turmoil. I disagree with that. Like, I, I see what you're saying, but I feel like, you know, if, three key speakers the ones that i'm tuning in to listen to are using professional audio equipment and then the rest are using phones i'm not worried about that right like i'm fine with the you know mediocre audio quality if the content they're talking about like i'm, I'm very willing to listen to like peter mckinnon or casey neistat through an iphone mic i have no problem with that but if you know every like i would like some people like the key speakers to have a good sounding microphone that's just me, though. It would it would be better in that sense, like it would sound a lot nicer. But I, I guess I just agree with the I'm uh, the fundamentals of how the app works. But that's again how I perceive the app. What do you think, Mike? Where do you fall on on this spectrum? I'm kind of I, I I understand and I I understand both. I think that um, I don't know how I feel about the like the premium um like desktop version that you'd mentioned um i don't necessarily know how i feel about that but i feel like uh having that option to have a better mic i think would be huge um just because i think it would also put it kind of similar on of a level that like discord's on um you know discord you can use discord on your mobile um and you can use discord on your desktop now it doesn't necessarily now i think there also gets to a point where 
I don't. I was just gonna open up um, Clubhouse and look, but I don't know if there's like a explore. Is there an explore page for Clubhouse? Do they have that kind of a deal? Uh, yeah, kind of. Kind of like the home page is kind of like the explore page of people you're following slash topics right. you're interested in that are live right now. Right. Right. So I think that's intriguing because like I find myself kind of just hopping on and being like, oh, is there anything cool going on right now? Let me see. And there'll be like four rooms that are open, some of which I'm like, oh, that's cool. And most of which I'm like, eh, that man, I'm not going to tune into that. But the like, you know, just the ability to I think the, that ability to just hop in whenever is just so interesting you know like with twitch right you're 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 kind of hopping in whenever but it's also like you know more or less the stream schedules of your favorite streamers with this one it's like anywhere and anyone in the world could be talking about an, an interesting topic that you find interesting as well you just so happen to open the app on a whim and you're like yeah i'll tune into this like i think that's kind of cool right and i think going back to twitch like i, I kind of want hopefully like they kind of avoid like that twitch thing because i feel like twitch there's like a like they're technically there's not you can stream on twitch using whatever you want but i feel like quality wise and this is coming from somebody who does i stream on twitch um not as consistency as i would consistently as i would like but um you know i feel like there is like that entry level of like streaming quality that you need in order to actually kind of get somewhere with streaming and 100 percent agree um exactly even though even though you know you technically don't really need anything and i hope that clubhouse can avoid that and i think that all kind of comes down to explore page and how they do if they you know i don't know if they have an algorithm but how they do an algorithm comes down to it and i just hope that they do it in a way that promotes um just conversations smaller creators. smaller creators doesn't yeah. matter what kind of quality you have um you know all that i just i hope that they kind of take that route as opposed to the route that twitch took where it was it's all about you know they changed it as of recently i noticed that they changed when you're browsing through games on twitch um it's no longer the most popular at the top it kind of sprinkles in smaller creators throughout which i do i love that um but for the longest time it was most popular on the top and that's it and I hope that Clubhouse, given its platform and given the type of um, like their design for their app, I hope they take a completely different route for that. Yeah, I don't like the layout of the app as much. I find it a little like a little too confusing um, because I don't know. Okay, is this is this a random room that it thinks I want to join, or is there someone I follow in there? Um, so I feel like they. The, the app definitely needs a lot of work in terms of how they want to proceed with it, what they have, what how it looks. But they they got something great here, and it, it could be the next big thing, 100%. We shall see. We shall see. So just before we wrap up, Bobber, you said you had an activity that you wanted us to do. Yes. Okay. So right when we were... So in the room that I hosted uh, two days ago, um, I... I decided to have everyone do this um, this fun thing. So basically, I want you guys to think of your favorite photo that you've ever taken. And I want you to describe it in a way where us, the audience, who can't see the photo, can try and perceive it. So explain how it looks, what details are in there, what kind of emotions it, it invokes, what it made you invoke. And in kind of sense, give us the story of your image and describe it in a way that you would to someone who can't see it. All right. Um, I think so. 
my favorite photo. Can I literally just describe like yeah, start describing whatever the you want, however you 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 okay. want to do it, you do it. All right. So my photo, I took it from um, the top of a mountain, um, Mount Tamalpais. Um, if anyone is uh, familiar with it, um, it's a mountain that looks overlooks San Francisco. And you can see San Francisco off in the distance. You can't necessarily see the Golden Gate Bridge, but what's beautiful about this mountain is because of that iconic San Francisco fog in this mountain being just north, like the mountain is just across the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and because of how close it is to that bay, to the Bay Area, um, it has incredible um, inversion, inversion, um, cloud inversion to it and so the fog rolls in and it's it provides this absolutely insane landscape that um is very um it's not something you can really see in many other places in the world unless you go way high up in the mountaintops um and so uh, i went out one day and um my boss and i we went out one day and we shot the sunset and this we were doing long exposures, um, and I shot it um, at 30 seconds because I wanted to get complete motion um, of the uh, fog just to totally make it, like, beyond just, like, oh, I can see it kind of moving, but just, like, a complete, like, smooth, silky um, look to the fog. And the way that the sun had set, the sunset above just behind the mountain to where it was casting the shadow on the uh, trees that were just poking up above. And so when the fog was rolling in, there was like a little smaller kind of like uh, mountain, not the peak, but there was like another like little ridge and the trees were poking up through it. And the sunset was just barely hitting the tip of the tallest trees. And so all these trees provided this incredible silhouette kind of look to it. And then just the treetops had this orange ridge line to it on the last like 10 feet of these redwood trees. And it totally gave like this total like dreamy, um, wanderlust kind of a feel to it. And in post when I went to go edit it, I kind of wanted to go for that dreamy kind of a look as well. And so when I did so, I lowered the clarity a little bit. And when I had shot it, I had shot it. I, the lens that I use, it's a Canon um, 70 to 300 f4.5. And this thing's an absolute workhorse and can go to, it maxes out at f45. And so because of that, when you, I had, I had it all the way up at f45 and it kind of gives like a little bit of like a, like a shake effect to it. Um, twerk adds more to like that loss of clarity and gives it like a cool trippy dreamy effect to it um, and so I also in post further kind of went with that look and dropped the clarity a little bit and then brought up like the pinks a lot and really made those clouds look like cotton candy and like just added that dreamy effect to it and I think I mean yeah it's definitely probably my that is tied with another one for my all time favorite picture but I think just dreamy Wonderlust, um, a once in a lifetime view. I'm trying to think of other ways I could describe it, but just, yeah, I think that's it. Mark, go ahead. 
you explained it really well like like great stuff like i i can i can totally picture it and i i, I did as you were just explaining it and it sounds sounds majestic yep <laughs> i know exactly which photo you're talking about so you you described it very well um all right my favorite photo it's hard to pick a favorite but the one i always default to so super tight headshot from like cutting off the top the bottom of the chin to cutting off the top of the head this beautiful girl nice thick dark wavy hair eyes like emeralds with sapphire sprinkled in just popping out at you skin texture fair but you can like see the texture on her face and with nice little freckles and it's just oh it feels so real you can touch it and the this this look of intensity with these eyes that are quite literally an ocean slash window to the soul and you're just mesmerized by this that you know a human can look like this and i absolutely will forever love that photo and it's why the reason why it's one of my favorite photos of all time that sounded like a poem dude (laughs) so good thank you damn mark thank you yeah great description i love that you know, you're to, I don't know Thank if I've you. seen that picture. I'm not, now you're going to have to show me once we wrap this up. You're going to have to send me that picture because now I want to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, t- I'll text it to you. Yeah, I want to I see that too. And Mike, send me yours too. I feel like I know which one you're talking about, but I also don't. Yeah, I can send at it. At the same time. I'll, yeah, I'll send it. All right, Bobber, you're the one who brought this up. I guess I will describe mine as well since I actually never got the chance to do it in Clubhouse because I was moderating. So I'm like, I want to let everyone else yeah, do it. do it. I would, but this one is arguably my favorite photo that I've ever taken. Um, it didn't take much effort at all. This shot actually took me like not even five seconds to shoot, and I didn't realize how great it was till I got home. Um, so it's it's taken in in in, in Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto. It's where our city hall is, and there's generally fountains that are that are um, right in right in the middle, right outside city hall, uh, behind the the ice rink. And they they had just shut down for the night, so the floor was still wet. So I'm like, I want to take a nice reflection shot of, of the tower, and what I have, what I got was phenomenal. So the bottom half of the image, ooh, I hit my mic. The bottom half of the image um, is a distorted reflection of Toronto City Hall. Uh, the building itself um, so has a, has a massive circular, circular atrium. Um, it is enclosed with with pillars that go from the left edge of the frame to the right this is still in the middle part of the frame and then surrounding the the circular atrium are two concave and facing towers um with 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 basically super sparkly reflective white lights um in the middle so they're kind of enveloping um the atrium as well and right smack dab in front of the atrium silhouetted by the building is a couple in embrace um and it the feeling that i sort of get is that it's it's sort of like two like the towers um are like these two entities that are looking over this couple and and sort of protecting them and i I get that kind of like otherworldly majestic kind of vibe to the image that it and it's just honestly every time i look at it i'm just it makes me feel 
things I, I don't know how to explain. Like, it makes me feel safe, and it, it, it invokes a sense of, of, of power and also just wonder because it, they're, they're so small compared to the, the mass of, of, of the rest of the image that um, you almost don't really notice them. But when you do, you go, wow, that's, that's awesome. And the best part is, I didn't know that couple was there either. You only saw it in post. Um, so when I was taking the photo and I was zooming, I only saw it in post. So I was I was doing the order effect, so where I add this 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 nice dreamy glow to my images, and I was zooming in because I like being selected with it. And I saw this couple there, and they were just uh, basically in in like this like kind of like a dancing sort of sort of stance, and I'm like, oh my god this is perfect. So I silhouetted them out and in contrast with, with this dreamy golden yellow that um, that's around them and with, with, with these the massive twin towers above them, it, it's honestly my favorite picture of all time. Well, I can understand why. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm almost positive I know the exact one you're talking about. Um, I've, I've reshared a couple of times as this is my favorite photo of all time. Which is understandable. <laughs> so you probably have. <laughs> You know what's what just made me kind of sad at the moment? People who who were born blind, they don't know what colors are. So we we've been saying things like, you know, emerald and and pinks and white clouds and and golden yellows, but they don't know what that is and I wonder whether or not their imagination um allows for that if they've never seen it. Yeah, or whether whether it yeah for the last for they're just they're guessing something completely different but i i hope that it's equally as as magnificent as what we see if not better we can only hope that's the best we can do all right before we sign off where can people follow you i can be found on twitter at yaits bobber or yeah it's bobber or you can find me on instagram at negative exposures Feel free to DM me and say hi. Uh, and you can follow me um, on Twitter, Instagram, I'm even TikTok. I've just about the, almost any social media that I use. Um, you can find me there at uh, Mike Kemp Photo. That's M I K E K E M P Photo. There we go. Thank you guys for being on the Wide Angle Podcast, and I can't wait to do another one with you in the future.